0: On this episode of the Fear Me Out podcast, I interview Barry Shore, who is the president and CEO of Sanctuary Centers. I met Barry 1987, working in a psychiatric ward. We hit it off right away. Both have the same sense of humor. Barry is an incredibly inspirational fellow. The work that he does in running a center that is devoted to the care of the really difficult population, homeless and other types of mentally ill people is incredibly inspiring. So I hope you enjoy this podcast with Barry Shore. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now, Doctor Dana Saperstein. Welcome to the Fear Me Out podcast. Today, I interview a guy that I met in 1978, working at uh, the local hospital in the psychiatric ward. He and I were not patients, though <laughs> we were we were professionals at that time. And uh, Barry is a really lovely guy. We had it, we hit it off really well. At, both have the same sense of sense of humor and all that sort of thing. Um, it, Barry Shore has uh, spent his career working in the mental health field now. And for how, many, how long have you been the, the CEO and president? Uh, 40 years. 40 years at Sanctuary Centers of Santa Barbara. Um, and I'm going to let Barry describe what he does for a living and the population that he works with. I wanted him to come on the show because I really feel strongly that what he does for the community is extremely important. So welcome, Barry. Tell us a little bit about what you do, and then I'll start asking you questions about who you are.
1: Great. Thank you, Dana, and a pleasure to be here with you. Sanctuary Centers started out in the 70s as a adult uh, inpatient last residential treatment facility for severely mentally ill adults. In fact, many of those adults came from the hospital psych unit that you and I worked on. Um, and uh, over the years... Um, I watched them from afar grow and in 1983 uh, I was asked if I would uh, take over the president CEO position there and help them uh, with growth and some financial issues and so forth. And uh, I said, I would, and I said, I'll commit to staying there for two years, Um, (laughs) two two years, (laughs) Yeah, two years, (laughs) but only if you let me do what I want to do. Right. And you may remember, uh, Dave McDermott. Yes. Uh, so Dave was the president of the board back then. And, and they, they were, they were kind of desperate for somebody. So I, they said, sure, you can do what you want to do. One of the things that was very interesting was they, Sanctuary House, as it was known back then, had, had done a very good job of alienating uh, the psychiatric community in Santa Barbara. Their model was a model of little, if any, medication, uh, little, if any, contact with psychiatrists, almost entirely unlicensed therapists, and lots of hugging. All the things that that you and I grew up knowing we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> um, and so, so we started building relationships with the psychiatric and the mental health community. We started adding licensed clinicians, uh, more akin to my background in, in, in uh, hospital-based mental health. And then uh, we started looking at how to make uh, a facility that was healthy um, for our clients, uh, and back then Sanctuary House had had uh, eight beds and had exactly six clients, and and we had a staff uh, of nine people besides me, very small, but because of my background, which was uh, uh, initially Bellevue Hospital, in New York City. Uh, one, one of the most difficult institutions to work in, let alone to be a patient in. Then coming out to Cottage, I actually came out for a job at Camryo State, but at the last minute, Cottage made me a better offer. But you may recall, Cottage was still doing a lot of electroshock treatment and over-medicating patients. Uh, and so I was damned and determined to create an environment that was healthy, was balanced, Psychiatry plays an important part, medication plays an important part, therapy plays an important part, But and recreation and fun activities need to play an important part. Diet and good nutrition needed to play a part. But most importantly, clients needed to have an environment that felt like a home, uh, not like a hospital. And most of them had never been in a place like that. So so we set about a process to create an environment for them that that they would wake up in the morning and feel good about where they were. And they would go to bed at night and feel good and safe and comfortable where they went to bed, just like we all want to do in our lives. Sure. Um, So from there, we looked at, okay, they come and they stay three to six months with us in residential treatment, usually coming directly from a hospital. And then we say, congratulations. And good luck to you and keep in touch. And we said they could always keep in touch. But there was no next step. And it's kind of like folks who wind up in prison. And when they get out of prison until the last decade, there was really no next step. Congratulations. We hope we don't see you again. And so we looked at next steps. And and we saw that for many of these folks, they needed ongoing support so that they didn't fall back into bad behaviors and old ways. They needed socialization and, and recreation on an ongoing basis. And they needed a safe roof over their head. And for a lot of them, as, as, as you well know, Dana, being a psychologist, that a lot of folks with mental health issues come from families with mental health issues. And in some cases, uh, the, the family system survives based on the disability of, of the, the, the son or daughter, and when the son or daughter gets well, the family system sometimes begins to disintegrate between the parents. So we didn't want them to go home. We wanted them to have someplace else to go. So we created back then what were called satellite apartments, where they would share an apartment with two or three other people, and staff would come in a few days a week, and, and then they would come back to the residential program as outpatients for some services. And then we said, okay, great. We found, figured out that next step, but what's next after that? After that needed to be, what are they going to do with the rest of their lives? They should have every opportunity that we've had. And, and my philosophy was always, and still is, mental health is not a roadblock. It's an obstacle to be overcome. And, and someday, hopefully, there'll be cures and even better treatments that we have now. But it still should be a chance to get stable, to, to get back on your feet and have opportunity. And so we created career development. And we started working with our clients on volunteer jobs. And then we started working with them on school. They would start taking classes of adult dead, and we would get them tutors to help them. Some of them would go to SBCC. Depending on when the onset of their illness was, they may have been in college and had a year or two uh, of school before their illness got the better of them. So we started working with UCSB uh, and Dennis Nord in their counseling and career services side uh, and getting some help at giving our clients a chance to go there as well. Then we started looking at who is willing to employ these people, give them a chance. So we ran around to local businesses from banks to coffee shops to Sears and we started getting them jobs. But what we promised was support. They would get support and, if the, and no wrong door. They tried a job or they tried a class and it didn't feel right, try a different one. Just keep trying to find what felt good. And then we also started working with the regional occupation programs. Maybe they're interested in vocational training. Back then it was automotive repair and cosmetology. Now it's computer programming uh, and, and, and banking and all of these other things, but it was about giving them next steps. So from there we saw, okay, these little satellites are nice, but we want to get them their own apartments. And there is so much stigma and I can talk about this at some other time, but in this community toward the mentally ill, nobody would rent to them. And we know we have little, very little availability of apartments and somebody pulling up in a BMW who's got a good job is going to beat out somebody with mental illness that might be on Social Security disability for an apartment. So we looked at how we could get apartment buildings. From that, we bought our apartment buildings. From that, we added an outpatient center. We started identifying in 1985 that 5% of our population also had substance abuse issues. You can't just have substance abuse issues question is, did the mental illness come first and they were self-medicating? Or is the, is the mental illness come second after the substance abuse and, and the related effects of that substance abuse? But nevertheless, we saw clients needed help with substance abuse. So we, we, we looked for experts to teach us about how to work with folks that we had what was then called dual diagnosis. It's now called co-occurring disorders. Now, Fast forward, 65% of our client population has uh, co-occurring disorders. So we have a very robust co-occurring disorder program for those that need it. If not, they just go to our outpatient mental health program. But then we saw, what are we doing with the family system? We partnered uh, with NAMI to get parents into the family-to-family program, which is exceptional, to teach parents how to get on with their lives at the same time that they're helping their son or daughter uh, get on with their lives through being treated in our programs. But we also needed to work on family systems. Because of the mental illness, the families treated their son or daughter, even though they were 18, 20, 22, 30, as children. And in return, the clients treated their parents as parents, and they were needy, and the, the clients learned how to manipulate their parents very skillfully. So we had to change the system. We're not always successful, but we focus on trying to shift the parent-child relationship to adult to adult so that the parents can move on with their lives, the client can move on with his or her life, and they can have an adult to adult relationship. So we built a family therapy system. From there, we started looking at what else can we do to serve this community? And we are constantly looking at where the gaps are in the our system here in Santa Barbara County. Most nonprofits look to the county government and the city to take care of those problems. We know that the county in this county and the city don't have the wherewithal to do that. So we look at, when we can, partnering with them, but first and foremost, how we can help this community's population. You may remember, Dana, when St. Francis Hospital closed and they had a senior unit up there that was run by Horizon Mental Health. That went away. We have an abundance of seniors in this community, and we have no resources for seniors who have mental health issues and substance abuse issues. So we started working uh, with Garden Court. Garden Court is our next-door neighbor on our outpatient campus. They provide 90-something units of of housing for low-income seniors, about half of whom have mental health and substance issues. And we've continued to expand to provide the services and that gap to that ever-growing population of seniors, which I'll at least admit I'm part of. From there came an interesting thing. We didn't work with children and adolescents. We had deliberately stayed in our lane with adults and then older adults. But we received a reach out from Cottage Hospital that they had a population of clients, mostly clients who had been involved in the NICU or uh, were being seen at the House Clinic, and they couldn't get psychiatric services for them. And when you think of Cottage Hospital, you can't imagine they can't get something that they need to serve their patients. But they knew we had three psychiatrists. Further, Children's Medical Clinic, the oldest medical clinic for kids in, in Santa Barbara, 90-something years old, they couldn't get their patients into psychiatrists. 12 to 18 months wait for the local clinic here, public health, same amount of time, private psychiatrists, four to six hundred dollars an hour if you can get in. Just a system that really was a disservice to the youngest in our community and and the most fragile. And on top of that, COVID hit. So in partnership with Cottage Population Health, Children's Medical Clinic, we started a child and adolescent. Psychiatry and therapy program. And what we promised was every child that came through either Children's Medical Clinic or through Cottage Groton House Clinic, we would see them for psychiatry within seven days. And we would see them for therapy within 14 days. And we offered a, a, a kind of smorgasbord. The, the pediatrician could have a telephone consult with the, our psychiatrist. And together, they might be able to brainstorm what to do with that patient. If the pediatrician determined that the client needed more emergent treatment from the psychiatrist, fine, we got them in within a week. But our focus was always, and it is still always, to take that client, and when they're stable on the medication side, to return them to the care of the pediatrician. That way, we open up the space for the next client. With the pediatrician knowing they can always come back for a telephone consult or for an in-person psychiatric visit. But we continue with the therapy side as long as the patient and some cases the family need it and want it. And we've continued to grow that. The problem for us uh, is there's too much demand and, and and not enough uh, capacity on our part. And we're working on that and that's, that's another story. But so now we like to say we really serve a continuum from kids as young as four, five, six years of age to to older adults in their 80s and 90s. And we're constantly, again, looking for where the gaps are in the system and where we can do more. And we're working on that right now.
0: That's really remarkable. Do you ever sleep?
1: Do I ever sleep? <laughs> yeah. Sleep is highly overrated. <laughs> I was going <gonna> to say <laughs> I, I, anything more than four and a half hours is a waste of a good day. I'm,
0: I am listening to all of the things that you have done and all the things that you're doing. I'm thinking, does this guy ever sleep? He's got a that's just so remarkable. Because I remember, I mean, my knowledge is way back from when you and I met each other, and it was. It was so primitive in those days, and, and the, the population was not served at all. And you guys are, it sounds like you're just doing the most remarkable job.
1: Well, the, the best thing is that my board let me do what I wanted to do. Yeah. The next thing that kept it going was that I found incredible staff. We we have tremendous longevity amongst our staff, 10, 15, 20, 30 years uh, that they've been with us. Uh, we're also a training ground for post students who right. we wind up hiring a lot of because we train them sure. and, and second year and third year doctoral students do their training with us. And at this point, most of the brilliance comes from them. Most of the hard work comes from them and, and, and I get to look good, but <laughs> I never stop thinking <clears throat> of things. My, my vice president clinical director, who's been with me for years, keeps telling me to stop thinking of more things uh, that she can't take anymore. <laughs> but, but it's this population never stops needing support in ways we don't think of in the moment, right. but come to us later. And this community still we're, what we're doing you know, where, where you and I come from is bupkis. It's a drop of what's needed. We could serve 500 more kids next week if we had the capacity. We, right. we're, we're about to break ground on, a, on what's going to be the tallest building in Santa Barbara since 1946. Four more floors of low-income housing for the mentally ill, much larger integrated care clinic, much larger counseling services. But again, it's Pupka's. We need hundreds of beds right. for, for folks here. We need apartments. We need services. All you have to do is walk around town and see the the number of homeless mentally ill that, that we can't do enough for. And one of the most heartbreaking things for me is a lot of them are our generation right. and a lot of them are Vietnam vets. Yes. And, and they're on the street and we have to do more in this community. So, no, I'm never going to stop and I'm never going to sleep more.
0: Okay. Well, that's good because we need people like you. Thank you. Absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm very curious about what brought you into this world in the first place. So you, you come from back east, right? Yeah. Where, where were you born?
1: I was born on Long Island. Okay.
0: And uh, tell us about your life as a, as a kid in Long Island.
1: Well, I grew up uh, in, in a household with a mother who was seriously mentally ill, Oh, okay. I didn't know she was seriously mentally ill as a child. I knew she was crazy. Uh, I, I found out years and years and years later that her brothers had warned my father not to marry her uh, because she was crazy. Wow. And, and he was on the rebound and about to go off uh, to world war II, and he just wanted to be married. Um, and uh, so he, he, They got engaged before the, he went off to service and, uh, and she was, she was very crazy and she, she got worse as time went on. She, she refused any kind of treatment or help other than various drugs such as mill towns and, and eventually, uh, sopers and things of that type. She abused alcohol terribly. She self-medicated. Right. And my dad's way to deal with it was to work 12 hour days in New York city uh, six days a week and every time I would beg for his help because she was physically abusive as well as emotionally abusive although at times she would lock herself in her bedroom for a week and I would have a little peace and and I had an older brother who who was very uh, depressed although I again I didn't know that he was depressed I just knew that he hid in his room all the time uh, so I had nobody and I would beg my father to protect me and he would say just do what your mother says so I started running away from home when I was 11, I just couldn't take it. I ran away the first time at 11, took took the buses and the subways into the Port Authority Bus Terminal New York and slept on the floor there for three days. I I called home, my mother answered and, and I said, did you call the police? And she said, why would I have called the police? I said, because I've been gone. And she said, so what? Oh and and I said, do you want me to come home? And she said, I don't care. But if you come home, nothing's changed.
0: And how old were you at eleven? This time? Oh, my God.
1: So I ran away m- multiple times. Uh, I actually got... The second time I made it to Massachusetts, uh, the last time I made it to California, where I had a cousin living on a commune in, in Northern California. He, he was a heroin addict, but a real sweetheart. And I stayed there for a bit, and he kind of talked me into going back home. And then my my uh, guidance counselor in, in high school uh, called me in because I kept missing so much school. And she was very nice. And she said, asked me for information. She said, we need to find something productive for you to do. And, and she knew I had an interest in photography. My, my dad had actually given me one of his old cameras. And she said, I'm going to find you a volunteer job. And, and I was in 10th grade then. And she found me a volunteer job on Saturdays at a place called Luther Woodward School. It was a school for developmentally disabled kids. And I got to go there and lo and behold, they had a dark room. Hadn't been used in years. Wow. But they paid for me to get supplies. And I taught kids photography. And I had such a wonderful time. And and I thought okay, this is making life a little more bearable here. And another way to get out of the house without running away. And this was um, high school at the time. High school. Yeah. I managed to, uh, with her help, uh, we were also, you know, 60s hippies. And and the school didn't like the hippies. Um, So they worked out a deal with a few of us where we could graduate six months early in December and they'd get us out of school. They didn't know there were more coming behind us. (laughs) Um, And so... I graduated in December, got a full-time job, uh, managed to buy myself a car, and my dad said he would pay for my bachelor's degree. And I went off to Syracuse University because it was a party school and a lot of my party friends were all going there. So I got up there and I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. I don't know why, but but probably because my dad said you should be a lawyer or or a doctor. You know, it's a typical Jewish family thing. Right. And uh, uh, so I took a lot of poli sci classes. And then my advisor said, you've got to take some electives. You haven't met your elective requirement. And it was art classes, religion classes, or psychology classes for the most part. I had no interest in art. I had no interest in religion, including my own. So I took a psych 101 class. And boy, was that interesting. I thought, okay, I'm going to take psych 102. And so I took Psych 102. And by then, I started staying after class to talk to the, the TA. Once in a while, you got the professor uh, about my mother. And they kept telling me, you know, she's mentally ill. But, you know, obviously they weren't going to armchair diagnosis her. Um, but I thought, this is interesting. It's, it's kind of like you read a book by some author and you're intrigued and you want to read more of his works. And pretty soon, you're reading everything he puts out, so that's why I started feeling about psychology. So before I know it, I get called into my my advisor's uh, office again the end of my sophomore year, and he says, "So what are you? Are you a poli sci major or are you a psych major?" Right. So then I s- thought about it. And I said, "Yeah, I'm a I'm a psych major, but I wanted to also learn about social work." So I I went on and got got my I got. Bachelor's in dual major, psych and social work. And uh, uh, my dad told me, because I said I wanted to get a master's in psych, and he said, I'm not paying for that. If you want to go to law school, I'll pay for it. But if oh. you want to go to psychology, graduate school, you're on your own. So I got student loans and got my, went, moved back to New York City because it was more interesting than being in upstate New York and went to Columbia and got my master's. And I had an opportunity to do an internship at Bellevue Hospital. And this is back in the days when they were doing hundreds and hundreds of shock treatments a week. Wow. And really going way back, they were still doing partial lobotomies.
0: Oh, my God. That is and, so, and so wild.
1: I was appalled. Uh, Geraldo Rivera, actually, was one of his first exposés what, what was going on at Bellevue Hospital and also at Creedmoor Hospital. The, the hospital attendants were using... Uh, cattle prods to move the patients from room to room Ugh, geez. yeah it was awful um, but the I didn't know what I wanted to do with the masters I was driving a taxi cab at night and thought well maybe I'll just get my degree and drive a cab and they offered me a slot in the in their psychiatric technician program oh, Okay, and said not only will it cost you nothing uh, but we'll hire you when you're done and the pay was Wow, wow. More than I was going to make with a master's in psychology, even if I went for a license back then. So I did the program and uh, stayed there and uh, worked there for a couple of years. But then uh, I got sick of the winters. I had to come to yeah. California. And I also wanted to get as far away from my parents as I could. Yeah. I could have driven to Hawaii. I probably could. But came to California. I had applied for a job at Camarillo State and been hired over the phone pending an in-person interview uh, and I knew I'd been to Santa Barbara before and I knew it was great place to live and it was really cheap, not so much anymore. <laughs> um, but, uh, I also saw that Camarillo was back then about a 30, 40 minute commute. So went there, had the interview, like every newbie, uh, I was offered the graveyard shifts and weekends. Right. Uh, and I called, cottage because I heard they had a psych unit and I just wanted to go see it. And I called this woman, Diana Hanson, who answered the phone on the psych unit. And, and I said, I'd like to come for a tour. And she said, you want to come tour the psych unit? <laughs> and I said, I know it sounds a little weird, but I, I'm a psych tech and I'd like to take a tour. She said, okay. Meanwhile, I called their HR department and I said, um, do you have any jobs? Just What the heck? I'll check. And they said, no, we have no jobs uh, on the psych unit. Um, so I went take the tour, and I explained to Diana when we took the tour why I was doing it. And she said, they told you we have no jobs? She said, hang on a minute. And she got the floor supervisor, and and the floor supervisor said, who told you we have no jobs? I said, HR. She said, we have jobs. She asked what my license was, and I said I had just Sent in the paperwork to get reciprocity in California, um, and she said, "When do you want to start?" <laughs> and I said, "What?" And she said, "When do you want to start?" I said, "Well, I have this job. I'm supposed to start a camera. She said, "I can send you down to HR and get you started today." And I said, "Well, well what shifts will be will I be working?" And I figured she's going to say graveyards and weekends, and and holidays. And she said, "What do you want?" Mm. And I said, excuse me? And she said, what do you want to work? I said, you mean if I want to work Monday through Friday, 7 to 3.30, I can? She said, it's yours. Wow. And I said, why is that? And she said, because we have no men. Right. They had no male staff. Yeah. Other than the doctors. And, And I was like this reverse kind of tokenism that they needed a male. So I could have whatever I wanted. And you and you may have been the second or third male. You agent. know
0: what? I always wondered why they hired me. Well, now, you know, we,
1: we, we were reverse tokenism. Exactly. Um, so that was a fun time in my life. It was a great place to work. It was yeah. a great place to do therapy and so forth. But I had two epiphanies while I worked there. And, and one was, I was sitting in shift change at six forty-five in the morning in the staff room, eating donuts and, And the medical director, Dr. Lambert, at the time, he brought in the the monthly Harvard Medical Review and threw it on the table and said, you guys may be interested. So I'm looking at it, and I see this thing on the front page about a new diagnosis called borderline personality disorder. Mm. And I start looking, and I start looking. And and I was supposed to go out on the floor. The shift change was over, and I said, just give me 15 minutes. And I read about half this article, and, and I went and copied the rest of it. And I thought, there it is. That was my mother. Oh, okay. And and traced it back to my grandmother, who'd had several nervous breakdowns and so forth. But it was the first time I saw something that was exactly my mother's diagnosis. Because I had, as we studied and took all those classes, I kept trying to find... I tried to diagnose everybody back then in graduate sure. school. But till I found out what it was. But the second epiphany was I was in therapy back then here with a wonderful therapist, Annette Goodhart, uh, who was went on to become famous for the laughter therapist. And right. and I would see her on her boat. It was wonderful. And, and she said to me, you know, you come in here all the time. And all you want to do is talk about what you would change at Cottage Hospital. Right. She said, that's most of your conversation. You would change this. You would change that. You don't like the patients are, have to do this. You don't like the way the patients are treated. You don't like their rooms and all these things. And I'm thinking you want to be the CEO of that hospital. Exactly. But I was also complaining. I used to do the psych assessments uh-huh. at, in the ER back sure. then. Yeah. And and between that and what I experienced at Bellevue, um, a lot of horrific stuff. Yes. I couldn't separate that. I, I could not go home at night and let it go. And that was what originally sent me to therapy. Was I I could not distance myself from it and leave it at the office, so to speak. Um, and and she kept telling me if I couldn't learn to do that, there there was no way I was going to make it in a career being a therapist. Right. But then she and I and I was kind of feeling despair about that because then what the hell am I going to do? But when she started pointing out all my things I would change, she said, maybe you should go back to school and go into management like hospital management. So long story short, that's what led me to get out of the the clinical side of things and into the management side of things.
0: Did you go back to school at the time?
1: I, I got hired... Uh I applied for a job as a program director of the Klein Bottle. Uh with the position was to be groomed to be the next executive director cuz the founding executive directors were retiring. And they received money from Health and Human Services to fund these were runaway youth shelters. And and HHS had a program in nonprofit management and you could apply to be a part of that program. I asked them, we applied, I got accepted. And it was a program held for, for this region of the country up in San Mateo. They paid your travel, they, they paid your accommodations and you went to class seven days a week, 10 hours a day and then you had a break for a month and then you went again and you did this four or five times and then you were certified by, by uh, HHS, as as a nonprofit management, not expert, but you were you had this federal certification, right? Um, so I didn't go back and get an MBA or an MPA or anything like that. But I learned so much, not just from the teachers that taught that, but from the other folks who were higher up in in organizations but wanted to be CEOs, right? And and that combination really led me in the direction.
0: That sounds really so, amazing. Thank you. Yeah. On a personal level, what do you what what do you get out of what you do?
1: You know, it's a good question. My my dad was a capitalist, and he could never understand how I could work for a nonprofit agency and work in mental health. Right. And every time I would talk to him or see him, he would say, "When are you going to get a real job?"
0: Even I, after you were working as as the uh, even a director.
1: Yeah, even after I started at at sanctuary centers. Wow. Um, he would say to me, When are you gonna get a real job and make a real living and stop with this nonsense? And I, I I was a broken record, and I still say this to everybody. There is no greater reward in this world, and you probably know this well as a therapist, than seeing someone get better. And seeing our clients get better, seeing our clients and all the obstacles. And all of the suffering they've had to go through and the heartbreak sure. they've, they've gone through, being able to graduate, being able to work, being able to go to school, going to their weddings, going to their graduations. We, we have clients that graduated 30, 40 years ago that w- w- still keep in contact. Wow! That There is no greater feeling than that. And I would say to my dad, you could offer me a million dollars. I wouldn't take it over this.
0: And a million dollars was a lot of money in those you days.
1: Bet. <laughs> and, and and I think in the end when he finally started going to therapy in his eighties, I think he finally got it. because oh, okay. he, he softened. But there is no greater joy and happiness in this world than seeing someone get better. And and I'm sure doctors of all kind and surgeons have that same feeling. And and it's I I just the, the, you know, there's a Yiddish word fell, which means your heart sings. My heart sings when I see somebody graduate and, and, oh, and, okay. and get well. And and now with the child and adolescent, seeing those kids with, with early intervention and prevention have an opportunity maybe to avoid the kind of issues the adults have gone through with serious really? mental illness, or at least be better equipped to deal with it. it it's, I just feel like, Every time we we find a new way to help people, it's a new way my heart sings.
0: You know, Barry, one of the reasons why I started the podcast is because, in my experience, a lot of therapy pathologizes people and treats people like there's actually, and I I know you work with severely mentally ill people, but a lot of the therapists that I know make people feel worse about themselves rather than better by the way that they are diagnosed and treated. But hearing you talk about what you're doing, despite how how mentally ill some of these people are, you treat them like they deserve respect. And I think, th- I'm, I'm not sure if you realize how important that is, but from my perspective, uh, your approach is very unusual in what it is that you do. Because it sounds as though you're doing everything you can to give these people a feeling of humanity and care and and respect that they don't get most of the time. Because, you know, again... All you got to do is walk downtown in our city and it is one of the saddest, most depressing things that you can do. And it didn't used to be that way. Right. Right. I mean, it used to be a really vital, beautiful place. And now I don't even go downtown anymore. And when tourists come here, because it's a tourist destination and they say, what do I do? I say, well, don't go down state street downtown because if you do, all it's going to do is make you feel bad because of how sad it is. So I agree with you that, um, you could probably have 200 times the beds and everything that you have and still, you know, not have enough, but it's amazing what you're doing. It's right. so sweet that you consider each step in a person's life and uh, have tried to figure out what you could do to help that person live as, uh, as graceful and as, um, productive a life as possible, considering the limitations that they are facing.
1: You know, you, you hit the nail on something and that is. We don't, and philosophically, we have never treated the diagnosis. Right. There are too many programs that treat people based on their diagnosis. Right. And you and I know, in the field of medicine, the most inaccurate science is psychiatry. (laughs) That's for sure. It (laughs) is completely subjective. Yeah. You know, and and I I I cannot tolerate that. We treat the individual. Right. And 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 we make them know and appreciate that who they are is based on who they are and not what diagnosis it says on their face sheet and their chart right and and we will always continue to do that and they're part of every bit of treatment planning we do uh there is they need to be engaged in the process and you're right it 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 is just so wonderful to help folks start to feel like they have a little bit of control in their life. And when we, when we bought our apartment buildings, we created a quasi homeowners association, Uh each floor in each building has an elected official, they sit on a board of directors over the buildings. Once a month they have a membership meeting, all the tenants, all the buildings come and they police, they manage, they run with staff support they run those buildings. And for m- most of them, it's the first time in years they've had some power and control in right. their life.
0: And dignity. Yeah. Respect. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So wh- where do, where do people that, that come to sanctuary centers, where do they come from?
1: About 50, 60% of our clients are homeless. Really? And talking about the adult population. And by the way, we also started some years ago serving the mild to moderate. So we do have therapy services for mild to moderate adults as well. We, we do that in partnership with SENCAL, okay. uh, our local Medi-Cal provider. Um, but 50 to 60% are, are homeless. We try to get them into housing. We, try, we get them physicals and health and dental care. Uh, and, and then we get them the treatment they need. Uh, a large percentage of those are justice-involved as well.
0: So the, um, they're court-ordered?
1: So they, they may be court-ordered, or they may be repeat offenders mm-hmm. uh, um, who, who need treatment. Uh, we work closely with the drug court, uh, with the mental health court, and with the veterans court. We see a fair number of veterans, too. We had a program in the jail for a few years. We're hoping to restart next year. We stopped because of COVID. Yeah. We were actually working with inmates who had mental health and substance abuse issues and helping them transition out because they have a very high recidivism rate. Uh, And a lot of times that recidivism rate is just to get three hots in a cot. Right. Um, And then we also worked actively in the the probation departments program called PRRC, which is a post-release program. So the minute they get out of there, again, we work with the rest of the post-release staff Uh, around getting them into therapy, getting them treatment, getting them into a psychiatrist, getting their meds right, trying to find them housing, even if it's just temporary housing. Um, So uh, that's a large percentage of a population, but a lot also come especially for a Sanctuary House, our inpatient residential program, they come from Cottage. They come from Vista Del Mar Hospital. They come from UCLA. They come from Las Encinas. Uh, a lot of them come from the psychiatrist referrals. A lot of them come through NAMI. They've heard about the program from somebody else who's a NAMI member whose son or daughter is. What there. is
0: NAMI for our audience? NAMI Alliance? is the National
1: Alliance for the Mentally Ill. Oh, okay. It is a support system for the families of folks who have Mental health issues, okay, and and among the myriad of services and programs they offer, they have this family-to-family program that that teaches family members how to deal effectively with with family having a family member that has a mental illness and taking care of themselves at the same time.
0: So, if somebody was looking for treatment for one of their friends or relatives who uh, is, you know, having a really
1: difficult time,
0: how might they? What's the first step a person should uh, or could do?
1: Call us. Call us. Go to our website, sanctuarycenters.org. Okay. Um, 50% of the people we get calls from, we don't wind up serving. Oh. We okay. wind up helping them find the appropriate service.
0: Oh, So even if somebody doesn't live in Santa Barbara, you could still That's correct. kind of point them in the right direction? Yes.
1: Yeah, our, our f- mission is to help people. Okay. And a lot of times that help is being like like calling AAA and asking where's a good place to stay in town. Right. They'll call, some of them from, from Santa Barbara, some of them from out of town, some of them from out of state. Right. Uh, and we've, we've had calls from other countries uh, looking for services or can I come to your services in Santa Barbara? Right. But we will never leave anybody hanging. If we can't provide the services they need, okay. we will give them the names and the contact information of, of programs for them. Okay. So, and even if our clients eventually want to move out of town, like I have a client right now that's looking at moving uh to Virginia because her 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 brother, who's her primary uh a family member left alive and his wife are moving to Virginia. So, I researched and found her all sorts of services and opportunities, including including she lives in our housing, housing opportunities for her in Virginia. And I said, if none of these work out, call us. We'll find more. Okay. We want to be that navigation point. Either right. we're going to be able to help you or we're going to tell you who can help you and how to get there.
0: Okay. So I have another question. Where does the money come from?
1: It's never enough. I know that. That's um, why I'm asking. Um, because I'm,
0: I'm hoping that some of the people that listen to the podcast might be really fascinated and really uh, interested in helping. So I'm just kind of curious where the funding comes from for what you do.
1: We write a lot of grants, uh, private foundations. We've gotten tremendous support from a lot of the foundations in Santa Barbara, such as Santa Barbara Foundation, the Bauer Foundation, Wood Clayson's, Hutton Parker. Um, but, but you know, we have more nonprofits per capita than any other town in the country. Yes, and, and so there's a lot of competition for that money. Absolutely. We, we, we go for state grants. We, we work on federal grants. Um, we do a lot of, uh, private fundraising. We have a lot of families who've appreciated our services and they give what they can, or sometimes they're connected to someone else, uh, who can help. Uh, uh um, when we started raising money for our new building, the building was supposed to cost $6 million. Now it's going to cost $30 million. um, we have gotten a lot of donations. Jackson Brown, who's a saint, uh, uh, um, he did two benefit concerts for us, one at the Arlington with uh, David Crosby and Jeff Bridges and, and, and uh, gave us all of the proceeds and even got the production company to give us the proceeds. And then he did a second one, a standalone show at, at the County Bowl. That gave us the seed money. And then a lot of people who came to that donated money Uh, at the venue to us or or reached out and started donating money. Um, Now we're trying to build a bigger scholarship foundation because we get a lot of folks who don't have Medi-Cal and, and, or don't have any way to afford services. A lot of our services are free, um, but some services, like the veterans we serve, the VA won't give us funding. So we serve them on a scholarship basis. They tell the vets you need services, get on the bus and go to Ventura or get on the bus and go to LA. Oh, well, okay. if you're seriously mentally ill, you're not going to You do can't that. do that. Right. So we serve them. You know, we owe our events a heart full of, of services and support, but we could use more support and funding. So we're trying to start a $5 million scholarship fund to help serve them. We, we can always use more help.
0: I can imagine. So if uh, one of my listeners would like to donate, Financially, what's the best way for them to do that? Call me. Call you? Call me. (laughs)
1: 805-680-6067.
0: You want to say that again?
1: 805-680-6067. That's my cell. If you're interested in in helping us, please call me.
0: Okay. Because, again, I I mean, most organizations like yours are terribly underfunded, right? I don't know if you guys are... are better at getting grants and do, doing what you do than most. Um, I know that you're a go-getter for sure. And I really, I just, uh, I can't even, you know, you uh, you and I ran into each other a month or so ago right. after having not seen each other, what, 30 years? Yeah. And uh, you're my hero. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, this guy is just so remarkable. And, and uh, your devotion is, um, it's really admirable.
1: You know, to, to me, and thank you for saying that, uh, there is no greater joy in than in this work. And every day at, at my age, I, I wake up and I can stand up and get out of bed. <laughs> All I can think about is, is what I can do today. Right. You know, I, 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 I love my kids. I adore my wife, who's the biggest support in the world. Right. But th- there's just no better joy than coming to work. And 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 doing what we can to help people, and I will do that. You know, a lot of people have said I'm going to die in my office chair. Right. I hope not, because that would be embarrassing. But, <laughs> but but as long as I can do it, I'm going to do it.
0: So no plans for retirement,
1: obviously. Not on the horizon.
0: That is so good. So good to hear. Yeah. So, um, what else do you think is important that you might not have mentioned yet that our that my listeners might be, uh, um might be interested in either a personal philosophy or professional or whatever it might be, because uh, you are a very remarkable person and your devotion is um, just, it's really lovely.
1: You know, we, we, we are so fortunate because we live in paradise. Yes, we do. Um, uh, And some of us forget what it is to give back. And when we started opening facilities in the 80s, we were picketed. We were protested. We had picketers block our construction workers. Wait a second. Because
0: who, who was protesting?
1: Neighbors. They didn't want a oh, mental health facility oh, in their neighborhood. Oh, okay. and, and we had it multiple times. Wow. And we have come, had people come out against us. Our new building, we had people come out because we had to get a special... Uh, compensation to allow us to build an extra floor height, but it was more right. housing for the mentally ill, right? The, the city wanted it, but we had people come out and say, no, they're, they're lying. They're not going to build housing. They're going to turn it into condos and put a disco on the top floor. Uh, Seriously. There was a lawyer who got up and said that, but we've outgrown our space. And even with our new building, we don't have enough space. Our child and adolescent program is, is, as I said earlier, we're we're beyond capacity. Right. So we started looking for the first time in years. We're fortunate we own all of our facilities to rent a facility. We're in the middle of COVID times. Office space is being given away. Right. We have so much empty office space in the community. Sixteen times we offered to rent space at the full rent price they wanted three to five year lease to serve children and adolescents. And these are children and adolescents living at home with their families, going to school who needed to see psychiatrists and therapists and get some help. 16 times we got told, we don't want your kind in our building. Come on. 16 times. I went to the city council and talked to them about it. And one guy said, and then another, and then another said, but if you want to move your administrative offices here, we'll rent oh, you tomorrow. God. And I looked at them and I said, these are children. These right. are not seriously mentally ill who should have the right to be seen there too, right. but these are children. Yeah, These could be your kids. One, one of the real estate agents said to me, don't shoot me. I'm only the messenger, but I sure right. hope the, the building owner never has to come seek your services for his kids. Yeah, no kidding. But stigma, and this is what I told the city council is still alive and well In this community, 16 landlords would rather sit. One of the buildings is still sitting empty. A year and a half later, 16 times, they would rather sit than get rent to us. And we didn't ask for a break of any kind. Stigma is alive and well and palpable. And think of all the people we could serve who need housing if more landlords would be willing to rent to them.
0: So it's not like you weren't offering them money. Right. You're offering them the full amount that they were asking.
1: triple net, whatever they wanted, nobody, nobody would rent to us. Wow. So we finally had to switch gears and now we're out there looking to buy a building. So again, we have to raise more money to buy an office building because nobody will rent to us.
0: That is stunning.
1: And I was shocked. I knew there was stigma when we opened and built our buildings years ago, but I thought... Surely, in such an enlightened community as Santa Barbara, after all these decades, it couldn't happen. So, when it happened the first time, I thought, okay, that's an anomaly. Right. Second time, third time, until it's like 16 times. That's nuts. We don't want you in our offices. Wow. Whew. So, <laughs> that's where our, our sleepy little paradise needs to stand up every day and advocate for folks who have mental health issues, to get the same treatment and have the same rights and the same opportunities as everybody else. And and the worst of the worst is for our children and okay. adolescents to be able to see be seen for treatment without, we don't want your kind in our building.
0: Which is, you know, Santa Barbara, as you say, is a fairly progressive place. I wonder what it must be like in places that are not as... right. right? Sort of right. enlightened.
1: Yeah. It is oh. appalling. We took an ad out, in, a full-page ad in the Independent, last year, trying one last way to reach out to people if they had office space available and subtly, subtly indicating that a lot of landlords had turned us down. Right. Didn't do any good. We got a call from a tenant in one of the buildings that had been turned down a year before saying, I don't know, I saw your ad you know, there's office space in our building. And I said, oh, yeah, we know we applied. We were turned down. He said, oh, my God.
0: Wow. So how do you keep your spirits up personally under all these um, circumstances?
1: Large part, I being married to a therapist, I process almost every night. Okay. Uh, and she also happens to be... The, an eternal optimist you know i'm an, i'm still a new york cynic at i Mark. was gonna say yeah so it's it's hard but she's worked miracles with well me. find
0: me a jewish optimist and that, that's a one-off
1: <laughs> it is yeah I, we could tell jokes about that i have that's a right. lot of them but but and and two i see like i've said before how hard our clients work Yeah. And how hard my staff works. They are the most incredible staff on the face of the earth. And I am so blessed to have them that all of that keeps me going. For some reason, they like me, you know? Yeah. You know, it's like Sally Field said uh, when she got the Oscar, you really like me. (laughs) Well, somehow they like me and they like what I'm doing for the most part.
0: Well, because a lot of employers can't keep employees a year or two, let alone. Yeah. You know,
1: we are very fortunate and we, we try to honor and appreciate our staff as much as we can. But this is the greatest thing in the world. I have no hobbies. You know, I, like I said, I love hanging out with my kids and my wife, but if I retire, what am I going to do? if you don't keep your everything aarp says if you don't keep your brain active <laughs> dementia sets in right. so this this more than keeps my brain active thank heavens right. I can still remember most of it right and where my office is but but the other thing is i don't play bridge i don't play pickleball i guess i should i you know i don't i don't have hobbies i, I used to garden i got tired of that hurt my back right. so this is my life and 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 there's no greater reward than what i have so and every day is a reward in a different way
0: well thank you so much for coming in and uh, allowing me to interview you on the podcast you are truly an inspiration so before we finish i just want to make sure that everybody knows how to uh, get a hold of the sanctuary centers and to get a hold of you so can you can you give us one more yeah one more
1: yeah well sanctuary centers you can go to sanctuarycenters with an s on the center, org. And there's everything about all of our programs and how you reach us and how you contact us. Um, that number is 805-569-2785, and somebody will help you. But if you want to help support us, you want to help us with our building, you want to help us with our scholarship fund, you want to help us help more vets or more kids, call me, 805-680-6067, and I will thank you a 100 times over for your support.
0: Well, thank you, Barry. It's, it's really been a, a pleasure. I'm so glad I ran into, you know, all these things happen for a reason.
1: Well, it is such a pleasure to be here with you, Dana. Thanks. And and I'm glad you and I are both on this side of the grass. Yes. And still. And, yes. and I hope we, we get together more often, not just for this podcast, but because it's a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.